0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the anti-government protests in Cuba in the context of decades of anti-communist propaganda in the U.S. and our punishing embargo intended to destabilize Cuba to the point of governmental collapse. Clips today are from Democracy Now!, The Majority Report, Past Present, TED-Ed, Second Thought, and Now and Then.
1: I wanted to ask you about the impact of uh, uh, this mention of the over 200 uh, new sanctions that were imposed during the Trump era that the Biden administration has so far not yet uh, rolled back. And also the covid situation. There has been a resurgence of covid uh, uh, or a actual new surge of covid uh, in Cuba, but it's still relatively small from what I can tell, for instance, there have been about 1,600 total deaths since the pandemic began in Cuba, a nation of 11 million. New York City alone has had 33,000 deaths since the pandemic, and New York City actually has less people than, uh, than the Cuban population. I'm wondering uh, how big an impact has been this surge of COVID, and also could you detail a little bit more about these sanctions? What were the kinds of sanctions that Trump imposed that did not exist previously?
2: First of all, um, the Trump administration, and what they did in terms of sanctions on Cuba, first of all, it came as a shock because we had just come out of here in those last couple of years of his presidency. And we were all very hopeful that this re-engagement policy, uh, because it was having very good consequences on our economy, especially when it comes to tourism. And then tourism is one of the first areas in which you can see the consequences of the, what the Trump administration did. They basically rolled out uh, policies Obama was adopting and they started applying more than 200 sanctions like tourism. If they banned cruise ships, they forbid flights to other cities, than, uh, to other cities that was in Havana. That had a toll on our tourism revenue. Then uh, the other sanctions, like they applied an oil blockade. At some point in Cuba, we had a major oil crisis because the United States was stopping the oil that came into the country. And not just that, what the embargo as a whole means is that it is hard for Cuba. in many cases, it's impossible to do business with other countries, with, with companies. So that makes it very hard to access food, medicine, the basics. Now, when you bring that into a pandemic in which the Trump administration did not slow down at all, they actually increased what they were doing. These uh, causes even bigger harm because then the COVID response of the country was harmed by the the, the the policies of the Trump administration. And it is very important to understand that this war that the United States has been waging against Cuba, just because Donald Trump is no longer president, it doesn't mean it's no longer in place. Because even though Joe Biden is six months into his presidency, all of the sanctions that Trump applied are still in place. So that is very important to understand.
3: I wanted to... Now, Go to Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaking Monday about Cuba.
4: Over the weekend, tens of thousands of Cubans took to the streets uh, on the island to exercise their rights to assemble peacefully uh, and express their views. The protesters called for freedom and human rights. They criticized Cuba's authoritarian regime for failing to meet people's most basic needs, including food and medicine. In many instances, peaceful protesters were met with repression and violence. The Biden-Harris administration stands by the Cuban people and people around the world who demand their human rights and who expect governments to listen to and serve them rather than try to silence them. Peaceful protesters are not criminals, and we join partners across the hemisphere and around the world in urging the Cuban regime respect the rights of the Cuban people to determine their own future, something they have been denied for far too long.
3: That is Secretary of State Tony Blinken. Daniel Montero, if you can respond.
2: Yes, first of all, with what with, with Secretary of State just said, I, I think he's been very polite, but I think it is, it is always, um, in a way, uncomfortable for us as Cubans to listen to any American politician wishing us the best while at the same time applying a policy that does exactly the opposite. Sure, who can oppose to the idea of a government listening to its people and the idea of, of everything working out for the better? Sure, that 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 is ideal. But at the same time, it's a bit hypocritical to 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 not mention the biggest problem to our economy. We're talking about a moment in which We're living a crisis. People are taking to the streets because we are in a crisis. And that crisis is largely due to the United States sanctions. To come out and just support people. No, the biggest support the Biden administration could offer to the Cuban people is to lift the sanctions, especially during the period of the pandemic.
1: And could you comment about the reaction of uh, Cuban Americans uh, in in the United States, uh, especially in South Florida, uh, there at times it seemed to be bigger protests in Florida than there were in, uh, 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 in Cuba in terms of actual people in the streets.
2: Yes, look, uh, cute Americans in Florida um, in, in many cases uh, can be blinded by, by some of the of the coverage that, 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 that they have. I would say this look, I can accept any comment, and I think that the idea of all of the Cubans here and the Cubans abroad coming together and discussing the issues of the country, I think that is an, an amazing idea and something that we should, uh, that we should all go for. Uh, but what has shocked me the most is to have Cuban-Americans in Florida asking for a military intervention. This is, this is the, some of the most colonial behavior I have ever seen in my life is because if you have any understanding of what a military intervention is you, you like how can you call for another country's army to invade your country that that for me is simply outrageous i don't know how else to 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 describe it sorry if I've, it's not most professional but it is my country
3: Let's talk about Cuba a little bit here, because protests have broken out in Cuba recently over food, medicinal shortages, and people have the right to critique their government. They have legitimate critiques. They can have legitimate critiques over the inefficiencies of the Cuban government's ability to provide, which have been exacerbated uh, by the pandemic that crippled Cuba's economy because it relies a lot on tourism and that not every critique of a government that is on the left is something that we're going to say is illegitimate, right? That's not what we're talking about here. In the United States, the conversation about the U.S.'s crippling sanctions that were reinstated by the Trump administration being a driving factor here is largely absent it's not at least talked about enough at all and these sanctions have become more and more obviously immoral and cruel and that includes sanctions on iran and other countries amidst this global pandemic because sanctions hurt the citizenry they are offset onto the people in that country And they're starved and they're lacking in medical supplies in many instances. Luckily, the Cuban government has a significant history of providing for its citizens. So it's not as bad as, say, in Iran. But the Biden administration has not reversed Trump's reversal of Obama's policy of ending much of those crippling sanctions. Jen Psaki was asked about uh, this yesterday. Let's take a listen to what she had to say. And you and others designating Cuba. Secondly,
4: on Cuba, what is the status of the review of the Trump era policy?
5: <clears throat> sure. So I would say, Steve, that, um, and you and others who covered this uh, certainly know that. Um, uh, one first I will confirm of course we're still reviewing our Cuba policy with an eye toward its impact on the political and economic well-being of the Cuban people the nature of the kinds of changes that were made by the previous administration like re-designated, redesignating Cuba as a state sponsor of terror carry significant statutory restrictions uh, we've been running a thorough policy process on these and other issues with support for democracy and human rights always at the core of our work now there's no question that uh, the protests Uh, over the weekend uh, and the events of the last several days are significant event significant events and the it was the largest protest we've seen in cuba in a long time that will obviously have an impact on how we proceed so we will see how things develop in the days ahead and develop our policy responses accordingly we don't want to do it as one-offs we want to look at it as we have been in with a comprehensive approach in mind
3: Okay, so she says there that there are statutory restrictions restrictions because the Trump administration, yes, designated Cuba as a state sponsor of terror, was asinine. So uh, here's the solution: circumvent those restrictions immediately, immediately. And then she also says that support for democracy and human rights is always at the core of the United States' work. Laugh along with me. You know what's a violation of human rights? Prioritizing care about statutory restrictions over immediately ending a blockade of goods and sanctions that also influence other countries by the way that we uh, are allied with some of them go around it but a lot of them are coward to the united states given the power that we have in the world understandably in some and i i mean not fully understandably but you get what i'm saying and the democracy part the design of sanctions is literally to starve the Cuban people into making a determination for their own country that is based on artificial pain committed by the United States. So this is super indicative of the Biden administration's approach to foreign policy here. Whatever the foreign policy blob says goes and we're not going to touch anything that forces us to take any position at all except that the status quo is awesome and even though his pre- his Democratic predecessor, Obama, found it important enough to ease and reopen the relationship with Cuba. We don't want to take any position at all. So we're going to take a position, which is a position.
6: When these people say a democracy, they mean capitalism. Like yeah. we're, we don't, we're not supporting Saudi Arabia because of democracy. It's because of capitalism. And there's one thing to say, which is that, like you said up front, and the embargo. It's And I don't know, Brendan, if you have that image I just posted in uh, Slack. But when you look at how stark this is and how alone America is, I don't know if you can full screen the image maybe, but it's, there's the, U.S. and Israel that voted in favor of maintaining the, the embargo, and then Colombia, Ukraine, and the United Arab Emirates that abstained.
3: Brazil, I think, also abstained. Is that, is well, that, I'm not yeah. sure what's
6: going on with those dark ones. The I just
3: remember hearing they abstained. Yeah,
6: yeah, maybe there's a different kind of abstention than the yellow Colombia, Ukraine, UAE one, but, but I think the point is fairly clear right. when you look at this. We're the bad guys. Those They're not suffering under communism. They're suffering under U.S. just economic stranglehold
3: and if the iranian people if the cuban people want to protest their own government where we're not creating situations that they have to protest and making it much much harder then go ahead that's their right to actual democracy as opposed to capitalism but said as democracy in this doublespeak way
6: we're criminalizing protest here we have all these sorts of anti-road protester bills where you can either run them down or arrest them for a long period of time which obviously weren't in play with the pro or the anti-cuba protesters in miami recently those guys are fine because that's not who those laws are against those are laws are meant to crack down the left only
3: of course and by the way uh we were talking about this a little bit before the show. The Biden administration stacked its team with foreign policy consultants from this West Exec consulting practice, which was, you know, headed by Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State. What are they consulting on? Because from everything we've seen, they're doing nothing on foreign policy. They just want to go, no, nah, no, nah, I don't hear anything. I don't want to deal with this. I want to maybe deal with infrastructure and I don't want to cause any scene in this area. And we've even seen it in, in the way that they approach the border at the initial start of the administration.
6: The truth is, these things are better left not talked about. Like the, the U.S. has some dirty business that it likes to take care of and elaborating it um, publicly is not helpful for them
3: exactly and and biden as the empire politician as jeremy put scahill puts it so well um now talking about it serves that very project so i think this is by design
7: Anti-government protests erupted in Cuba this week in response to the country's deteriorating economic conditions and repressive government. These are historic protests in a country that does not tolerate dissent. On Wednesday, the government announced it was temporarily lifting customs restrictions on food and medicine, a move that will ease some of the most severe shortages in the country. The part has come at a pivotal moment in Cuban history. The country had been ruled by Fidel and Raul Castro since 1959, until Raul stepped down as head of the Communist Party this April. Yet the transition from the Castros has not seen an easing of government repression, and it comes as the weight of embargoes, the pandemic, and strict economic policies have brought Cuba to the breaking point. Neil, why is what is happening in Cuba right now so important?
8: It's so important because these are the largest protests that Cuba has seen since the Cuban revolution in 1959. And that is striking that thousands of Cubans are coming out and protesting right now and haven't done so for, what, six decades or more. And so a lot of people are saying that this is a moment in which things may actually change. It's a possibly turning point moment as the New York Times, the spark has been lit. And I think if you look back over the 60 years of the Castro brothers rule, in Cuba in the communist era, the smallest examples, the smallest instances of dissent were squashed almost immediately, right? There's a long history here of intense political repression, political violence, human rights violation that were handed out at, again, the smallest sort of examples of dissent. And so to see thousands and thousands of Cubans taking to the street In a very different political landscape, post-Castro, given all the other things that are happening in the world right now that are also being felt in Cuba, it feels like a moment where something big might happen, where some sort of big change might come out.
7: Yeah, I think it's the post-Castro thing, in addition to everything else, that makes it feel so uh, potential in a way, because a lot of what we're seeing it reminds me actually of the Arab Spring, you have the combination of protests in a really repressive place, it enabled in some ways, or, or helped out by social media, which is not brand new to Cuba, but the they're just getting the expansion of 3g on the island. So they're able to make more use of social media and the internet. And Yet it happens in a somewhat different context. You already have the Castros out of power, but you also have, it's been more than 10 years since the start of the Arab Spring, and that kind of techno-utopianism that surrounded social media and the revolutions that were happening there, that has, I think it's fair to say, has gone away. Mm -hmm. So people aren't exactly celebrating, ah, Twitter is going to free the people of Cuba in the way that I think, uh, naively, some people thought was happening back in in the early 2010s.
9: I think that's such a good point and I have not seen anybody make that except for you Nikki and it was I like I'd like to take credit for also having that thought as well that remember how like breathless those declarations mm-hmm. of this connectivity of social media is enabling a new revolutionary moment naive is be too strong a word but it was just so breathless and I think since then we've had such Many things that have made so many correctives to the notion that technology and social media is primarily a form that abets democratic sensibilities. Like it it can, but that's not definitely not the only thing, and it's also not neutral connector, right? Of people that there are lots of ways that's mitigated with like distinct um, political purposes. Something we talked about with Facebook a lot in um, before I believe the 2020 election and talking about sort of amplification and algorithms and all the rest. So I think it's super and interesting that the point is made that yeah, greater internet access is enabling this kind of communication, which is probably certainly one of the reasons for, you know, more intense activism, but that it's not the Twitter will save us moment, as you say.
7: But I think we're also not in a moment of uh, democratic triumphalism. It it was one thing in the 2009-10-11 period where you had the examples of Iraq and Afghanistan and like that you cannot export democracy. I think that was fairly settled by then. But you didn't yet have the examples of the rise of illiberal movements in the far right in the US and in um, Europe and other places. And so I think now with these revolutions happening, there is a kind of temperedness in the sense of can a repressive regime continue? Yeah, it can even in the Mm -hmm. face of massive protests. And so I think that hovers over this as well.
10: Imagine that one day you're summoned before a government panel. Even though you haven't committed any crime or been formally charged with one, you are repeatedly questioned about your political views, accused of disloyalty, and asked to incriminate your friends and associates. If you don't cooperate, you risk jail or losing your job. This is exactly what happened in the United States in the 1950s as part of a campaign to expose suspected communists. Named after its most notorious practitioner, the phenomenon known as McCarthyism destroyed thousands of lives and careers. For over a decade, American political leaders trampled democratic freedoms in the name of protecting them. During the 1930s and 1940s, there had been an active but small communist party in the United States. Its record was mixed. While it played crucial roles in wider progressive struggles for labor and civil rights, it also supported the Soviet Union. From the start, the American Communist Party faced attacks from conservatives and business leaders, as well as from liberals who criticized its ties to the oppressive Soviet regime. During World War II, when the USA and USSR were allied against Hitler, some American communists actually spied for the Russians. When the Cold War escalated and this espionage became known, domestic communism came to be seen as a threat to national security. But the attempt to eliminate that threat soon turned into the longest-lasting and most widespread episode of political repression in American history. Spurred on by a network of bureaucrats, politicians, journalists, and businessmen, the campaign wildly exaggerated the danger of communist subversion. The people behind it harassed anyone suspected of holding left-of-center political views or associating with those who did. If you hung modern art on your walls, had a multiracial social circle, or signed petitions against nuclear weapons, you might just have been a communist. Starting in the late 1940s, FBI director J. Edgar Hoover used the resources of his agency to hunt down such supposed communists and eliminate them from any position of influence within American society. And the narrow criteria that Hoover and his allies used to screen federal employees spread to the rest of the country. Soon, Hollywood studios, universities, car manufacturers, and thousands of other public and private employers were imposing the same political tests on the men and women who worked for them. Meanwhile, Congress conducted its own witch hunt, subpoenaing hundreds of people to testify before investigative bodies like the House Un-American Activities Committee. If they refused to cooperate, they could be jailed for contempt, or more commonly, fired and blacklisted. Ambitious politicians like Richard Nixon and Joseph McCarthy used such hearings as a partisan weapon, accusing Democrats of being soft on communism and deliberately losing China to the communist bloc. McCarthy, a Republican senator from Wisconsin, became notorious by flaunting ever-changing lists of alleged communists within the State Department. Egged on by other politicians, he continued to make outrageous accusations while distorting or fabricating evidence. Many citizens reviled McCarthy, while others praised him. And when the Korean War broke out, McCarthy seemed vindicated. Once he became chair of the Senate's Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations in 1953, McCarthy's recklessness increased. It was his investigation of the army that finally turned public opinion against him and diminished his power. McCarthy's colleagues in the Senate censured him, and he died less than three years later, probably from alcoholism. McCarthyism ended as well. It had ruined hundreds if not thousands of lives and drastically narrowed the American political spectrum. Its damage to democratic institutions would be long-lasting. In all likelihood, there were both Democrats and Republicans who knew that the anti-communist purges were deeply unjust, but feared that directly opposing them would hurt their careers. Even the Supreme Court failed to stop the witch hunt, condoning serious violations of constitutional rights in the name of national security. Was domestic communism an actual threat to the American government? Perhaps, though a small one. But the reaction to it was so extreme that it caused far more damage than the threat itself. And if new demagogues appeared in uncertain times to attack unpopular minorities in the name of patriotism, could it all happen again?
0: I want to talk for a minute about how competition in the attention economy is as fierce as ever and only going up. Because for a long time now, I have liked to think of podcasts as somehow being outside of the attention economy, you know, just because we're not by and large, fed to you through manipulative algorithms like YouTube or Facebook, or Twitter and all of that. But it is clear that that is not a clear-eyed view of the situation. Everyone, as we know, has a finite amount of attention and everything in the world is competing for it, including podcasts. So that means we're part of the economy just like everyone else. Now, starting at the beginning of the Trump years, give or take, we began to see our download numbers start to fall. And I chalked it up mostly to outrage fatigue. You know, People would write in and say, I can't listen to the show anymore. I can't handle the news right now. Fair enough, I thought. Um, but now it is clear that that's not the only cause of the drop and pure competition can't be ignored. So just like YouTubers who remind you endlessly to subscribe, and hit the notification bell, I essentially have to play the same game or inevitably be left behind. So to that end, in recent years, many podcast apps have introduced a similar function to turn on push notifications for new podcast episodes, and in an effort to get our download numbers turned back in a positive direction, I am asking that you, if you are willing turn on the notifications for when new episodes of Best of Left are published. And if you bristle at the idea, I'm with you. I dislike interruptions as much as the next person, so I only recommend silent notifications, as they're called on Android, or notifications that are delivered quietly, as Apple describes it. So you'll be notified whenever we publish a new episode, but only when you decide to look at your phone, not some other time when you're being distracted by it. Because the fact is, it's not just memberships that keep the show going. Listening to every episode and helping keep our download numbers up is also what helps us bring in advertisers too. And that is a critical part of it. So maybe just give it a trial run, see how it goes. If they don't bother you and it reminds you to listen to the show more often, win-win. If you hate it, turn it off later. No hard feelings. Now, as always, thanks for your support in whatever way you're able to give it.
11: The first important thing you can do is to be sure what communism really is. In other words, know your enemy. Whoever you are, wherever you are, discuss the Red Menace with your neighbors, your friends, your business associates, your fellow students. Are you a factory worker? A member of a union, a trade association, a service club, or a church? Be alert to spot anyone promoting the communist line. And be doubly alert when the communists Start hunting you. That's right. No matter who you are, you have your own circle of influence. So the commies want you. They have a variety of approaches. Any one of them may sound reasonable, even commendable. Just don't ever agree to join any committee or support any cause or sign any petition or allow your name to be used in any manner until you know the whole story, who's behind it, what their real objectives are.
12: Uh, I feel that the millions of Americans who have long voted the Democrat ticket are just as loyal. They love America just as much. They hate communism just as much as the average Republican, which which uh, proves my contention. And that is that in this fight against communism, it isn't a Democrat fight. It isn't a Republican fight. It's so easy, you see, to talk about communism generally, to talk about the sellout in China and Korea generally, but unless you call the role of the traitors, treason isn't like little topsy. It doesn't just grow. It's created by men with faces and men with names. And I think those of us who have been elected by the American people to man the watchtowers, unless we have the intelligence to recognize the traitors, and then if I may use a word which we use in Wisconsin, unless we have the guts to name them, we should be taken down from those watchtowers and should not be representing the American people. And I don't intend to ever avoid giving the names of traitors, giving the names of communists, I discover them an important position.
13: If you thought McCarthyism was a thing of the past, no such luck. This past month, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis held a bill signing event where he and some others explained what exactly their program entails. I'm going to play a few clips to give you a sense of what we're dealing with, and then we'll talk about some specifics.
14: Uh, The bill also expands our previous efforts in civics to add a requirement for the high school government class that um, students receive instruction on the evils of communism and totalitarian ideologies. Uh, We have uh, a number of people in in Florida, particularly southern Florida, who've escaped uh, totalitarian regimes, who've escaped communist dictatorships um, to be able to come to America. Uh, We want all students to understand the difference. Why would somebody flee uh, across Shark-infested water, say, leaving from Cuba to come to southern Florida. Uh, Why would somebody leave a place like Vietnam? Why would people leave these countries uh, and risk their life to be able to come here? It's important that students understand
13: that. Okay, lots to unpack here. House Bill 5, which is one of three related bills, includes a requirement that high school students be taught about, quote, the evils of communism and totalitarian ideologies. DeSantis then mentions Cuba and Vietnam. Let's start with Cuba. Cuba is an island nation which has suffered under brutal US sanctions for nearly 60 years now. These sanctions have been denounced by the UN as illegal and inhumane, and every single member state, with the exception of the US and Israel, continues to vote against the oppressive measures, measures which have cost the Cuban economy trillions of dollars.
14: Now, as part of this bill, Florida will create a portraits and patriotism library so students can learn about real patriots who came to this country after seeing the horrors of these communist regimes. We actually have uh, folks here today. Uh, you'll hear from uh, her in a minute. Anna uh, Abauza. She came to the United States when she was a teenager, fleeing from Nicaragua when the Sandinistas brought socialism to that country.
13: Another part of the bill is the creation of what Florida is calling the Portraits in Patriotism Library, where students can learn about people who are willing to be useful pawns to the political right and condemn left-wing politics, including one person who fled from Nicaragua when, quote, the Sandinistas brought socialism to that country. If Ron DeSantis weren't perhaps the dumbest politician currently living, I would assume this was satire, The years he's referring to are widely known as the period during which the United States funded right-wing death squads in Nicaragua and El Salvador. And it wasn't just indirect funding. The CIA also played an active and criminal role in what were called the Dirty Wars. For example, they planted mines around three Nicaraguan harbors, which constituted an act of state terrorism.
12: While the mining of Nicaraguan harbors has caused a huge political furor in the United States, Anti-Sandinista guerrilla sources here in Costa Rica feel vindicated because of the tactical effectiveness of the mining, specifically the denial of these high-speed patrol boats and landing craft to the communist government
13: in Nicaragua. Thankfully, the US was convicted of violating international law at the world court. So when DeSantis talks about people fleeing Nicaragua when socialism came to the country, what he's leaving out is that socialism was on track to improve people's lives and counter the lie of capitalist superiority. So the United States decided to intervene and plunge the country into chaos through unspeakable violence and violations of international law. None of this is secret knowledge. You can go online right now and read about Reagan's meddling in the global south.
14: Finally, I'm signing House Bill 233. The bill requires colleges and universities to conduct annual assessments on the intellectual freedom and viewpoint diversity uh, at these institutions. It used to be thought that a university campus was a place where you'd be exposed to a lot of different ideas. Unfortunately, now the norm is really these are more intellectually repressive environments. You have orthodoxies that are promoted uh, and other viewpoints are shunned or even suppressed. We don't want that in Florida. Uh, you need to have a true contest of ideas. Students should not be shielded, uh, from, from ideas. And we want robust First Amendment speech on our college and university campuses. And I think that having intellectual diversity is something that's very, very important.
13: Okay, House Bill 233, quote, requires public colleges and universities to conduct annual assessments on the intellectual freedom and viewpoint diversity at these institutions. Ron DeSantis is all about intellectual freedom, college kids having the chance to learn dissenting opinions, and freedom of speech on campus. Except, you know, when he's actively trying to ban things like critical race theory, which isn't even taught in Florida, or an accurate history of the slave trade topics which don't comply with his vision of a staunchly right-wing education. Let's get one thing straight. Reactionaries like DeSantis, and their wealthy suburban supporters, seem to believe that all colleges and universities are anti-capitalist indoctrination centers.
11: Are you a student? Or a teacher? Well, write to your congressman for a copy of J. Edgar Hoover's report, Communist Target Youth. See how, on direct orders from Moscow, The party is in a drive to get communist speakers into our colleges and universities. Taking advantage of American academic freedom and the students' naturally inquiring minds, their aim is to preach revolutionary tactics and change peaceful campuses into scenes like this. The communist incited student riots in
13: San Francisco. The assertion that communists are brainwashing the country's college students isn't new. It's a page ripped directly from McCarthyism, and we need to understand it as such. It is part of the New Red Scare. What this legislation hopes to achieve, besides fully rewriting actual history, is to have guest lecturers from blatantly anti-communist front groups come to schools and inject McCarthy-era Cold War rhetoric into the minds of American students, starting them on the track to become obedient, terrified little worker drones when they complete their state-mandated propaganda education i can say i agree with desantis on one thing teaching american history is critical that's why i am so opposed to this new initiative it doesn't teach history it dredges up the worst aspects of the red scare and tries to indoctrinate children with bizarre outdated and flat-out false pro-america anti-communist propaganda
9: I think when we talk about international issues, we often both acknowledge the limits of our expertise as US historians, and also while honoring what we do in this podcast, which is what does this mean for the United States? And mm-hmm. what is the US's role been in here? I'm curious to know what you all think about the fact that this particular oppressive regime is a left wing regime. And how does the fact that this isn't Castro, but this is a communist country that is enacting this? How do you think that affects how the reporting and how this um, whole case of Cuban um, uprising is playing in the US. The reason I think of this is because one of the kind of points of tension around a US response is that Black Lives Matter issued a statement that a lot of people were really angry about. And the nature of that anger was that people thought they were in many ways parroting that Cuban regime in saying that this was all the fault of US imperialism. The Cuban regime for a long time has said that uprising is purely a CIA plant that's meant to undermine the government in power. And so people in the US, who often would consider themselves allies with Black Lives Matter are like, what? Like, this is not Like, you need to hold the Cuban regime accountable for its role in this, not parrot their line about, oh, this is like just the result of US imperialism. So I don't know if you followed that storyline, too, and what you think.
7: I've seen some writing about that, although I don't think that it has had a major effect on the reporting about what's happening Mm. in cuba there are a couple of different lenses through which to look at this and i'm not sure left is the Mm -hmm. the best way to think about it and i wonder if thinking about colonialism and anti-colonialism is maybe the better way and again my mind is just being dragged back to the example of um, the arab spring when you had a combination of anti-us governments but also governments that had been propped up and countries whose stories had been, histories had been profoundly affected by U.S. intervention and by U.S. meddling in who gets to run the country. And I think a lot of that is happening around Cuba as well. There are, these protests are not being <laughs> stirred up by the CIA, I think it's fair to say. So I think we can navigate sort of um, false propaganda coming from the Cuban government while still reckoning with the legacy of, for instance, the US embargo in Cuba, which these are separate issues in some ways, like Cuba has its own set of economic problems that happened because there haven't been any genuine economic reforms there. Its repressive government is the core part of its problem, not the United States. But the US embargo is harming the Cuban people, especially in a time of profound crisis in the midst Mm -hmm. of this pandemic. And US involvement in the island has been a problem for Cuba for at least a century. And I think that that goes to Fidel Castro and to the communist regime as well, because Cuba became it obviously had its own autonomy, but it became a bargaining chip or it became one of those places where Cold War tensions and Cold War goals were being played out, not always um, with the, the needs and desires of the Cuban people in mind.
8: I do think it was striking how much the role or the causative factor of the US embargo here was downplayed in the reporting it seemed like in nearly every article we read, every time the Cuban government invoked the US embargo as the sort of explanatory power behind these protests, the piece has spent a long time explaining why that wasn't the case, even as it acknowledged that, as you just have, Nikki, that there is a long role that the embargo has played in making things worse here, that this isn't what is of the moment right now. And so I think they, these are journalists and news analysts writing and not historians, but. I also wonder if the fact that Biden hasn't changed Trump's policy when it comes to the US embargo in Cuba, if that's playing into it as well. And I think in some ways, like if we can just pull out and take a historical view here, I think it's also safe to say that the sort of Bipartisan position on Cuba. Certainly there's been variations from one administration to another. And certainly there are variations, if not in policy, I think in tone when it comes to U.S. Cuban relations. But if we're at the sort of bird's eye view of this historically, there's a fairly consistent bipartisan position here when it comes to Cuba. And I also, and I think that's both instructive for us thinking about how the reporting is going down mm-hmm. and also is a shaper of how that reporting is playing out right now.
7: Mm -hmm. But with a major exception, right? Which is the Obama administration, which had tried as hard as it could with the restrictions that Congress has in place to open up U.S. relations with Cuba. And that's, that makes the Biden policy in some ways more interesting, because Biden has presented himself as someone who was carrying on the legacy of the Obama administration. And yet on Cuba has been reticent. And it's hard to know how much of that is because of his own thoughts on foreign policy, something that Biden was deeply embedded in the Senate, and how much of that is shaped by electoral concerns. Because one of the places that really didn't like the Obama administration's moves around Cuba, were Cuban Americans in Florida, there was a, it's not a a monolithic community, but there was certainly some real pushback to the Obama administration's decisions to work with the Cuban government to create a thaw back in 2015,
8: 2016. Yeah, I think, you know, that's an important part here. Obviously, any person running for president needs to do well in Florida and the Cuban American vote there is a significant factor Mm -hmm. in how people do. It is important to remember that Obama had basically pulled even. Um, I, I think he got close to 50% of the vote in both 2008 and 2012. His policies, though, come at the end of his presidency, and they show up, I think... And in terms of their electoral effects more in 2016, and how Hillary Clinton did not as well as a sort of, I think, response again to what Obama had been doing there. Although one of the really important factors here is also the generational divide when it Mm -hmm. comes to Cuban-American voters in Florida. And we see generational divides in one constituency after another. There was a quite a significant break between older Cubans, who many of whom come from Cuba to the U.S., and Cuban-Americans who had been born here and who had a sort of different politics. And we were seeing that a lot in 2008, 2012. And it seemed to be suggesting that was going to be a trend that developed even more over time. But I think 2020 showed us that there is still a lot of power here in terms of a Cuban-American vote consolidating around a Republican candidate who takes a sort of hardline position about Cuba. The other significant factor, though, in 2020, which was much newer in Florida, in South Florida, was the large increased presence of Venezuelans Mm -hmm. who were also responding to that hardline position about Cuba and also to the ways in which the right – attached socialism to Biden. I just know from a friend in South Florida that Spanish language radio was running constant ads in 2020 from the Trump administration talking about el socialismo de Biden. So that that was something that was not just directed to Cubans, but to an expanding Central and South American constituency in South Florida that would be alarmed by associations with socialism.
3: issue of restaffing the embassy, why this matters.
15: It matters enormously. In 2017, Donald Trump uh, reduced the U.S. embassy staff and the Cuban embassy staff here in Washington by about two-thirds, leaving really just a skeletal staffing. And one of the things that happened was that the consular section of the U.S. embassy in Havana was closed to Cubans. And that meant that the United States was essentially violating the 1994 migration agreement that ended the famous rafters migration crisis during the Clinton administration. We had agreed at that time to end that crisis to accept a minimum of 20,000 immigrant uh, Cubans every year. Uh, And we'd been doing that ever since uh, 1985. But Trump administration simply ignored that agreement, uh, closed the consular section, and the number of immigrant visas that we have given to Cubans during the Trump administration fell by 90%. What that means is that in the midst of this really terrible economic crisis in Cuba, Cubans have no safe and legal way to emigrate to the United States. Uh, The Cuban Family Reunification Program, which we use to reunify Uh, Cuban and Cuban-American families was suspended by the Trump administration. So by restaffing the embassy and reopening the consular section, the Biden administration is taking an important step toward reopening safe and legal ways for Cubans to migrate so that they don't have to get on unseaworthy small boats and rickety rafts and risk their lives in the Florida Strait.
1: I wanted to bring uh, Carlos Lasso back into the conversation. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the practical ways that the sanctions affect uh, daily Cuban life and especially talk about the importance of remittances, the money that uh, Cubans in the United States send back to their families? Because obviously throughout Latin America, not just in Cuba Uh, The the money, the remittances from Latino migrants in the United States are some of the biggest sources of uh, foreign income uh, to these countries and Uh, greater than any U.S. aid uh, to the
16: countries. Yes, I want to go back to Professor Leo Grande about the closing of of the embassy. And that's one of the ways that these sanctions uh, affect the Cubans uh, here and over there. People, in, in order to get the visa, if they get it, They have to travel to another country. It's it's almost impossible to 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 get a visa. And if you do it, you have to spend a large amount of money. Also, uh, the reunification program uh, closed by Trump in 2017 that allowed an expedite way for Cuban Americans and for Cuban families to reunite. This was closed, and this affects Cuban families. The remittances in in October. Last year, President Trump uh, prohibit Western Union to send money to Cuba. Uh, the source of income of the Cuban families, many people receive income from remittances. And by by doing this—and it's just not to Cuba, to, to to the United States, let me tell you. For a long time, if you live in another part of the world, you cannot send money to Cuba through Western Union, because uh, United States laws prohibit that. And they, also, they close the the airports in all the provinces, meaning that they prohibit uh, American uh, airlines to fly to other airports other than 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 Havana. This really affect Cuban families. They're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, there is no tourism in Cuba now because of the pandemic. And one of the main sources of income for the country is the tourism and also the remittances. If there is no tourism and there is no remittances, uh, they end up empty handed. They, they don't have a way to survive. I have, in my personal case, I have my aunt. She lives in Cuba for many years. I have support her. She is a, an old lady. And I. I send every month money to her through Western Union. And right now, it's almost impossible to do that, first of all, because there are no flights, because of the pandemic and all the restrictions. And the family families are desperate, desperate. Uh, hunger uh, is happening in, in Havana, in Cuba, right now. And this bring me back to 1960. There was a memo written by by a subsecretary of state, Marjorie. And he said at that time that the only way to uh, get—to overthrow the Cuban government was by uh, creating hunger and desperation in the Cuban population. And then the Cuban population will uh, rebel against that government. And it seems that this memo is happening today. It seems that the United States is in the in the pursuing, creating hunger and desperation in the Cuban people to achieve finally the overthrowing the Cuban government. They the United States, uh, cl- yeah, the United States claims about the the human right violation in, in Cuba. But I think that one of the biggest human rights violations uh, on Cuba happens because a blockade over. 11 million families in Cuba, 11 million people.
1: Okay, and William, Leo, Grand, I wanted to ask you about this issue of the blockade. What do you think uh, the recent statements by Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, very strong denunciation of the sanctions, and, and he also said, look, the rest of the world has been voting repeatedly to end these sanctions. It's time to actions, not just words. What do you think the impact of a figure like AMLO, a such a close, a nation so close to the United States and so important to the United States uh, might do? Mexico never supported U.S. sanctions against Cuba. Even when
15: uh, every other country in Latin America went along with OAS sanctions back in the 1960s, the Mexicans refused. Mexico is obviously one of the most, if not the most important Latin American country to the United States. One would hope that this appeal by the Mexican president might uh, uh, be heard in the Biden administration. Uh, particularly, I think it's appropriate because the way that uh, President Obrador framed it was in terms of humanitarian assistance and the humanitarian need in Cuba today. Uh, and that need, as Carlos has said, is, is really extreme. And historically, the United States, even in the midst of, of our conflicts with Cuba, has been willing to provide humanitarian assistance to the island in uh, situations of national uh, natural disasters, hurricanes, for example. Even George W. Bush, when he was president, uh, offered Cuba humanitarian assistance after a terrible storm. It's It's not unprecedented for Uh, the Biden administration to uh, take some actions that would relax elements of the embargo, make it easier to ship medical equipment and supplies to Cuba, uh, make it easier to send food to Cuba, make it easier to send uh, uh, remittances. Most importantly, uh, Carlos is absolutely right about remittances. They uh, are a critical component of the basic income of more than half of Cuban families and with remittances largely cut off and with the tourism sector now shut down because of COVID, the Cuban government is essentially broke. They don't have the foreign exchange earnings to be able to import basic necessities like food and medicine and fuel. Uh, So there's a humanitarian crisis on the island, Uh, it's already increasing pressures for migration And it would be in the interests, not just of the Cuban people, but also in the interests of the United States for us to do something to relieve uh, that misery.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now! discussing the impact of the embargo on Cuba. The Majority Report also highlighted the impact of the embargo and the motivations of capitalism driving it. Past-present looked at the anti-government protests while comparing and contrasting to the Arab Spring. Ted-Ed explained McCarthyism and the threat of anti-communist fervor to freedom. Second Thought... Tied Florida's anti-critical race theory and anti-communism education policies to the long history of red-scare politics. Past-present looked at some of Cuba's faults in addition to the impacts of the embargo and the political influence of anti-Cuba passion in the critical swing state of Florida. And Democracy Now! discussed the details of how Cuba is being financially starved, helping to cause the humanitarian crisis underway. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Now and Then, giving an overview of McCarthyism and its direct ties to Trump, believe it or not, and the element of conservative politics that supports him. And Democracy Now! spoke more with a Cuban journalist about his impressions of the protests and the generational divide between the pro- and anti-government sentiment in Cuba. To hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now... We'll hear from you. Good morning.
17: This is William in Charlottesville, Virginia. Quick note on the terminology used in the abortion debate, as well as the overall polarization of it. First, it's not a two-sided argument. It's in our nature to try and draw a line in the sand on every issue these days. Then, we oversimplify the hell out of the two sides. Abortion is a multifaceted web work of an issue. It's circumstantial, it's utilitarian, it's emotional, it has everything to do with medical care, education, birth control, individual rights, etc. I often tell people I'm both, pro-choice and pro-life when I'm dealing with someone who's hooked on those buzz terms and that I wish it didn't have to be something any woman would ever need to consider. But I also can't pretend like I know better than any woman the choice she should make when faced with it. The other thing is the terminology, pro-life conjures up chivalrous imagery, it's a noble cause, the right side. Pro-choice however makes people sound selfish and soulless, their choice is more important than a baby's life. Who would ever want to be such a disgusting person? I don't subscribe to this two-sided, oversimplification of the issue. In your podcast, a point is brought up about how someone might use the argument, oh, you're pro-life but also for the death penalty. How hypocritical. The minutes that follow talk about this argument, but it never once realizes the obvious, we are not beholden to the terms put forward. We need not be pigeonholed by them. Pro-life really does not mean anything any more than pro-choice. The terms, pro-life and pro-choice are not synonymous with the debate over abortion and should not be treated as such. Please people, stop feeding the trolls. If someone asks your stance on abortion, tell them everything. Don't just throw out a buzz term, give the argument the time it deserves.
0: Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. So just a quick response to William, who we just heard commenting on the abortion debate. First of all, William was uh, disappointed, I think, that I didn't have a voice available for him. To to more closely mirror his self ascribed quote backwoods hillbilly vocal styles. So uh, apologies for that. Hopefully the technology will progress in in the coming years, and we can uh, create a whole range of uh, vocal styles. That would uh, that would be my preference. On the content of what William was saying, in terms of oversimplification and buzz terms, and what do they mean? Are they are they Beneficial for anyone to use? Are they so vague that no one really knows what you're talking about anyway? I, I think there's a lot of valid points being made, and uh, and you know his main point being basically we are not beholden to those terms. We are allowed to describe ourselves in more specific terms, or it just explain what we really mean rather than leaning on those buzz terms. And I think that's perfectly legitimate. The argument being made on the show in that segment that he's referring to actually is about how we should not get caught up in terms and hypocrisies related to those terms and and sort of just getting down into the muck and the weeds and it is advocating to say what you're for. Now I mean it doesn't necessarily specify you know which terms to use but shifting our framing from buzz terms or opposing that which we are against and and shifting to a positive this is what we're for kind of mindset I think is beneficial on many levels it, it was a communications expert who was making that case so I'm certainly not going to argue against that anyway also in in the show there was an argument being put forward that I actually hadn't heard before it's actually so clear and simple that it is a little embarrassing that it hadn't come up but basically over the last several decades the term abortion has been toxified and so that's why we have these sort of vague squishy terms like pro choice and pro-life because abortion in people's minds has been turned into a terrible thing that you should be ashamed of which is another point being made on the show the ideas of safe legal and rare put a positive sheen over a negative sentiment. And so it's a way of being good and helpful, but still kind of perpetuating that sense of shame that should be put on this concept. And so the argument was was made, a- abortion, pro-abortion. We're in favor of it. We think it's a medical practice that should be done. We think that it should be done when people need for it to be done, just like every other medical practice, and and medical event or treatment that someone encounters. If you need the treatment, you should get the treatment. An abortion is a medical procedure, and those who need it are the ones who should have it. It's not that complicated. And so where I would really push back on, on William is when he says, we try to make things very clear and simple and create clear and simple dividing lines, but abortion doesn't fit that very well because it is so complicated and there's so many nuanced thoughts and and all of that. I think his framing is just missing the point of where the dividing line is. And the dividing line is over who gets to decide. No one who calls themselves pro-choice or pro-abortion or an advocate of reproductive justice would turn around and argue that the decision-making process For uh, deciding to have or not have an abortion is simple, and my politics helps me define where that simple line is. Nobody says that. Part of the argument is that it is complicated, which is why it is so critical for that decision to only be in the hands of the person affected by the pregnancy. That is the clear dividing line. And I, I mentioned reproductive justice. I just want to throw that out there for anyone not familiar. If abortion is the super simple, clear, gender inclusive, non confusing term, then reproductive justice is sort of on the other end in terms of complication. But it is the holistic view that includes many, many additional issues that go far beyond abortion and recognizes that there is much more involved. So, you know, advocating for it to be legal to have an abortion isn't nearly far enough and that this conversation should be seen as one of an entire tapestry of issues including you know all aspects of family planning all the way to people who have chosen to have children and their ability to raise healthy kids in safe places that the elements of societal design and, and urban design and all of these things can actually be put under this very large and inclusive umbrella about creating a situation in which people can make their own decisions all along the way, have children, have abortions, whatever they want to have happen, and for those children to be raised as a matter of course in good, healthy, safe places just as one example, so that's sort of the whole range. And I think you know all of it is is incredibly valid from the argument from just use the clear, simple term pro-abortion. It's not confusing. It says exactly what you're in favor of, but also on the other end of the spectrum, uh, advocating for reproductive justice recognizes that abortion is just one piece of it, and we need to be thinking broader to create the healthy society that we're advocating for. So those are my thoughts on that. Not that many of them are original thoughts. I'm just trying to uh, help boost some of the best uh, ideas that some of the smartest people working on this topic have been saying for years or literally decades. And now, last thing today, before I go, I'm going to take a vacation this coming week, and... Here's the metaphor to help you understand. I was on the phone. We were having a little team meeting with Dion and Aaron, and I was a little befuddled. I was was looking for a a, a sort of a to-do list that I wanted to tell them about. I was like, oh, man, I don't know. I've got these, uh, I don't know, four or five sticky notes in front of me, but I can't find the one that has the list that I want to tell you about. Oh, wait, the wind blew in from the window and scattered my other sticky notes onto the floor under my chair. And we thought, yeah, that's, that, that's probably the metaphor that more or less explains how things are, are going right now, uh, hence the need for a vacation. So that's coming up next week. There will, of course, be uh, reposted episodes, which I, I think people like. Uh, people download those because I pick out the ones that I think are particularly good or interesting from our archives. And so be on the lookout for those and members are still going to be getting a bonus episode, because we've already recorded it, and and so that's coming out next week as well. If you're not already a member, now's a perfect time to sign up to get on board for that. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991, or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, web mastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoflife.com/support or from right inside the Apple podcast app if that's your style. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes. For details on the show itself including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode